So that moves us into Ba'asha's family. And that brings us to Elah. Elah is the son of Ba'asha, and that is chapter 16, verse 8. In the 26th year of King Asa's reign over Judah, Ba'asha, son of Elah, became king over Israel. He ruled in Tirzah for two years. His servant Zimri, a commander of half of his chariot force, which is against the Deuteronomic regulations for the king, conspired against him. While Allah was drinking heavily at the house of Erezah, who supervised the palace in Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him dead. This happened in the 27th year of Asa, reign over Judah. Zimri placed Allah as replaced Allah as king. When he became king and occupied the throne, he killed Baasha's entire family. He did not spare any male belonging to him. He killed his relatives and his friends. Zimri destroyed Baasha's entire family, just as Yahweh had predicted to Baasha through Jehu the prophet. This happened because of all the sins which Baasha and son Allah committed, in which they made Israel commit. They angered Yahweh, God of Israel, with their worthless idols. The rest of the events of Allah's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the King of Israel. So Zimri, his commander, comes in. And he does the exact same thing to the house of Baasha that Baasha had done to the house of Jeroboam. And he wipes out the entire house. The other thing you're going to notice is it is a very common thing for kings to die when they're drunk. Over and over and over again, not only in the Bible does it say, and he got assassinated by his commander while he was drunk in his palace. But when you go outside the Bible and read about the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all of them, it's, they get killed when they're drunk. In the book of Daniel, um, Belshazzar gets killed by King Cyrus when he's drunk. It is a very, very common theme in world history that kings are often assassinated when they're not drunk. So if the D.A.R.E. program could have said that, made that a part of the curriculum, <laughs> maybe we would have had a little bit fewer alcohol problems. Your guard is completely dropped when you're drunk, and everybody knows that. So Zimri is now king. Chapter 16, verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa's reign over Judah, Zimri became king over Israel. He ruled for seven days in Tirzah. Zimri's revolt took place while the army was deployed in Gibeathon, which was in Philistine territory. While deployed there, the army received this report. Zimri has conspired against the king and assassinated him. So all of Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that very day in the camp. So Zimri was the commander of the chariots. Omri is the commander of the army. And when the army heard that Zimri, the commander of the chariots, had assassinated his own king, the army didn't like that. So the army named their general, Omri, the king, in order to go and wipe out Zimri for that. So now we got a civil war here, military versus military. Omri, verse 17, and all of Israel went up from Gibeathon and besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was captured, he went into the fortified area of the royal palace. He set the palace on fire and died in the flames. This happened because of the sins he committed. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed in Jeroboam's footsteps and encouraged Israel to continue sinning. The rest of the events of Zimri's reign, including the details of his revolt, are re recorded in the scrolls called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. 
So Zimri was so scared of what Omri would do to him. He obviously determined that Omri had a much superior force and that the army was nothing that he could stand up against. And so when he saw the army coming down on him, he went into the palace of Tirzah and he literally burned himself alive in his own palace intentionally. He decided that suicide was preferable to fighting Omri. And then kind of in a typical spoiled little brat, if I can't have this palace, you can't have it too. And so he burns himself alive. He committed the same sins that Baasha did. And you're like, okay, but why didn't a prophet come to him and prophesy that his entire house would be wiped out, just like God prophesied that to Baasha and Jeroboam for doing that? Because seven days wasn't long enough for a prophet to get to him. <laughs> There's, I mean, he was only king for seven days. No prophet, like, the prophet might have been on his way. So, um, or probably not because God knows what's coming. So he doesn't get a prophet against him only because he doesn't last long enough to have a prophecy against him. But notice that the narrator does say that his death is a judgment from God for what he had done and for leading Israel in this sense. So even though there was no prophecy against him, the narrator says, ditto. The same thing happens to him, except he did it by his own hands which is another example of how God didn't need Baasha, Baasha to fulfill the prophecy. Jeroboam and Nadab's son could have done it by their own hands if they, God wanted that to happen. There's all these different ways. They could have tripped and fell in the shower. There's so many ways that this could have all happened. Notice how it mentioned several times that they were at Gibbethon. Gibbethon is an Israelite city. It belongs to Israel. It was given to them by God. They occupied it for a while. But the Philistines took over this city. The Philistines they should have killed a long, long time ago. And Omri was in the process of taking Gibeathon back as an Israelite general. Now, Omri is an extremely brilliant and successful general. He shows up outside the Bible in many historical records as being a phenomenal general and a phenomenal king when it comes to his brilliance and the way that he ran the kingdom. I don't mean phenomenal in like godliness. I mean in just purely building up an empire, economic stability, opportunities for people, um, peace and stability, that kind of stuff. So he is highly respected. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that Gibeathon would have been reclaimed by Omri. However, because of this whole civil war thing happening with Zimri and the assassination, he's pulled away from Gibeathon. And they had to abandon taking Gibeathon back from the Philistines. And Peter Lightheart says this, 24 years of siege warfare ends with Israel walking away from the battle, and they never return. Gibeathon is never again mentioned in Kings or in the rest of the Old Testament. The text leaves us with the distinct impression that Gibeathon remains forever in the hands of the Philistines. 24 years of supplies, death, blood, all wasted. From the Philistine perspective, Gibeathon is saved because there are many princes in Israel. Too many princes. It happened before. While Saul chases David around the country, the Philistines seize opportunity to make inroads into Israel, unprotected by its distracted king. When the people of God battle among themselves, Gentiles recover territory. And I think that's very important. When the people of God are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they're not acting as the image of God, and they're not expanding the kingdom of God or the garden of God, 
then the enemy, the nations who are pagan, begin to reclaim territory. And we're seeing that right now in America and Europe. When the people of God are walking away from God and they're abandoning it, churches are getting replaced by mosques, they're getting burned down, they're getting torn down, and we're quickly, and this isn't an anti-Muslim people thing, this is an anti-the-religion-of-Islam thing. I have no problem with more and more Muslims coming into our countries. I have a problem with their religion and their God. And so we're, we're losing ground because we're so distracted with our own selfishness, our own infighting, our own promotion, that the kingdom of God is not being expanded. And I'm not saying that every single Christian, but as a whole, we've been incredibly distracted as the church and the Western world with materialism, fame, wanting to be like everybody else, our own disputes and that kind of stuff. And this is very important that Philistine territories are going to gain a foothold and they're going to hold it forever. And the only people that are going to take it away from the Philistines are the Romans. But it was never meant to be for the Romans either. Chapter 16, verse 21. So at that time, the people of Israel were divided in their loyalties. Half the people supported Timnites and the Ganath and wanted to make him king. And the other half supported Omri, and Omri's supporters were stronger than those who supported Timnites and the Ganath, and Timnite died, and Omri became king. First, we have Zimri, who assassinates his own king, Elah, or Elah. And then Omri, the general, decides that that's not right, and they go into civil war. Zimri dies, but then another general in the army, Timnai, says, well, if this is just who can be the king of the hill, then I want to be the king of the hill. And he rises up in the inner back into the civil war. And they duke it out again, and Omri comes out on top in the very end. And this is all happening between the people of God. These are the people of God fighting among themselves for power. They look no different than the world right now. Verse 23, In the 31st year of Asa's reign over Judah, Omri became king over Israel. He ruled for 12 years, six of them in Tirzah, and he purchased the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. He launched a construction project there and named the city he built after Shemer, the former owner of the hill of Samaria. Omri did more evil in the sight of Yahweh than all those who were before him. He followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam son Nebat and encouraged Israel to sin. They angered Yahweh, God of Israel, with their worthless idols. So one thing that he mentions is God mentions that he moves the capital from Tirzah to Samaria. And from this point on, Samaria is going to remain the capital all until the Assyrians come along. It's going to remain the capital until the Assyrians come along. So right now, that's the permanent capital of Israel. And then Jerusalem is still the permanent capital of Judah. So that's the significant thing that he does. But then we're also told that he committed more evil than all those before him. We've already heard one of those. So he took the trophy now. Okay, this is now like a competition of who can do more evil than all those before him. And so he is now up the standard to become even more evil than Jeroboam had ever become. That's all the Bible mentions about Omri. Does more evil just mean more ungodly or were they especially evil? More evil would have to do with two things. The how much they promoted idolatry in the nation and how many idols they built and temples they built and all that kind of stuff, and their lack of social justice. How many people they ripped off, they cheated, they oppressed the poor and the foreigners and that kind of stuff. They, 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 um, they 
they murdered people for money or they, withdrew, they withheld um, civil rights from people to gain things. So that, those are the two things. And we know that because at the same, the same time the prophets are here. And when you go to the prophetic books, there are three major sins that God just lays into Israel for. And it's their idolatry, their social injustice, and their religious hypocrisy. And those are the top three that God just keeps hitting over and over again. And specifically, the social justice is um, enslaving the poor, taxing them higher than everybody else, making money off of them, not giving them legal representation, um, make, increasing um, cheating the foreigners, making them their lives harder, all this kind of stuff. Basically, the downtrodden and making the downtrodden's life even more miserable. So if you're not taking care of the downtrodden and the oppressed, and you're making their life more difficult on top of that, and you're getting wealthy off of that, you're more evil than those before you. So it's usually that's how they're being measured by the way that they're handling that. Good question. Omri was kind of like a Hitler. And I don't mean in a mass genocide kind of a way, but I mean as in Hitler was incredibly good for the economy of Germany. But he was incredibly bad for the lives of people, morality, life, all that kind of stuff. And so he, was, he oppressed the minorities, the poor. He built an empire on the backs of killing people and all that kind of stuff, just like Omri. However, he is praised for the ability of bringing Germany out of the economic depression, creating jobs and all that kind of stuff. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I am not trying to defend or justify anything that Hitler did. But as far as a statesman goes, he did great things for Germany as far as economic stability and opportunities for promotion in life went. However, as far as everything else goes in life and what really truly matters, he destroyed the country and the lives of many people beyond the country. And that's what Omri is like. Omri is often praised as building a huge empire, an incredibly wealthy, economically stable empire that's going to provide many opportunities for many people that they have never had in the history of Israel. And then outside the Bible, those records are extensive of what he did, and he's praised. In fact, Omri is going to be so respected by so many people and build such an economy that he, his name is, Israel is going to be known as Omri, the kingdom of Omri. And even when he dies and his descendants die, and he's replaced by a new family, Jehu, a completely different dynasty, Jehu is still called the Omri dynasty because Jehu is keeping going what Omri had built. So outside of the Bible, he's considered an incredibly worthy king in just a purely political, economic kind of a way. However, the Bible mentions none of that. Because in God's eyes, he doesn't care if there is no love of God and love of your neighbor. If, you're, if there is no righteous heart and there is no just king and he's oppressing people and he's worshiping idols... God does not care about all the political, economic stability and opportunities that you bring to the nation. And so God leaves it completely out. So Thomas Constable says this, Omri was probably the most capable king Israel had enjoyed since the division of the kingdom. 
Assyrian records refer to Israel as the land of Omri. His influence extended far. He defeated the Moabites, the record of which constitutes one of the inscriptions on the famous Moabite stone. He also made a treaty with Ethbaal, the king of Tyre and Sidon. Sidonia, that's Phoenicia, the orange up there. That involved the marriage of his son Ahab and Ethbaal's daughter Jezebel. Still, the writer of Kings does not mention these strengths, only the fact that he was the worst king Israel had spiritually. He was very bad because he personally followed Jeroboam's cult and caused the people to sin by allowing it to flourish in Israel. That's all God cares about. That's all that matters in God's evaluation. But, but God, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And God's like, you make me want to puke. Because all I care about is, he has told you, O oh man, what is right, to love mercy and pursue justice and to walk humbly before the Lord. And I know that's a paraphrase, but that's the idea. We come to Ahab. The narrator is going boom, 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 through all these kings. Now we slow down. And the book is now going to spend the rest of 1 Kings on Ahab. The Bible is going to camp out on Ahab for a long time because he is considered one of the worst kings ever in Israel. And he's going to bring Baal worship back. And in fact, not only are we going to deal with Ahab's reign all throughout the rest of Kings, but we're going to deal with Ahab's family and the ripple effect of his kingdom all the way into chapter 9 of 2 Kings. So Ahab's life is going to take up a big portion of the book of Kings. And the other reason he's significant is this is where Elijah comes in on the scene. And so the worst king ever, and other than Moses, one of the greatest prophets, are going to be paired up together in a face-off for pretty much the rest of 1 Kings and going into 2 Kings. So this is where we're going to be camping out for a long time as we finish out this major section. So chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa's reign over Judah, Omri's son Ahab became king over Israel. Ahab's son Omri ruled over Israel for 22 years in Samaria. Now I'm going to pause. Know something. Over and over again it says, and this king of Israel became king in the reign of Asa. Notice that we have gone through Jeroboam, Nadab, and then we have gone through Baasha and Allah, and then we've gone through Zimri, a little bit of Timni, <laughs> and then Omri, and now Ahab, eight kings, and Asa's been ruling the entire time in Judah. Asa was a godly king, he wasn't perfect, but he was godly, and God rewarded him with a very long kingdom of great stability. And in this sense, he became a great king like Omri was and provided stability for the kingdom, but he also was a godly king in addition to that. And God rewarded him with a long reign and rewarded Judah with great stability. Meanwhile, there's all this political turmoil assassinations, civil wars, and multiple overturns of leaders in Israel because they're so ungodly and they're doing their own thing. And another thing is, so that, that says something, that God can bring economic stability to a country as a reward for being godly. 
And one of the dis- one of the judgments for ungodliness is instability. And even though Omri is going to bring stability, even though he's the worst king and Nahab is going to be the worst king after him, it's mostly because at this point God is so fed up with Israel, he's going to allow Ahab to last so long as a judgment against Israel, just like Saul was allowed to be king as a judgment against Israel. But that economic stability, now can you imagine living in a country where all that, I mean, go to Mexico, and your government is constantly being overturned over and over again because of corruption in the government, assassinations, and all this kind of stuff, and what that would bring to your own sense of security as an everyday normal person. And the idolatry and the, and the, the political stability was becoming so great that one of the things that begins to happen during this time, during the reign of going the reign of Ahab, it begins to be, happen before Ahab, but especially during the reign of Ahab, many, many, many of the righteous people who live in Israel begin to migrate to the south in Judah. And they literally pick up their, and this is a big deal to move your home in the ancient world, because we're talking about lands that were given to you during the time of Moses and Joshua by God. And you're abandoning tribal territory that you've had in your family for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And yet you feel so motivated to move down to Judah and try to find a home there as a refugee because the government is so jacked up evil in Israel. And there's a huge migration that's beginning to happen. Even all the Levitical priests begin to abandon Israel and they begin to move down to the south in Judah. To the point that when we get into the Assyrian captivity, there really isn't any godly people left in Israel. And when the Assyrians come, they're literally going to kill over 90% of Israel. Most of Israel actually doesn't get deported into exile. Most of them get slaughtered and killed. And you're like, say, why would God allow that to happen? Because none of them are righteous anymore. The righteous people have literally abandoned ship and gone to the south in Judah. And so they're going to survive that. And so he's going to do to Israel the same thing that he did in the flood, the same thing he did to the Canaanites. There really is nobody righteous left. Now Judah is going to still go into exile, but they're going to fare better. Most Judaites are going to survive the Babylonian captivity because there was a lot more righteous people there. And so that's an important thing to understand not only what's happening here geographically and what the people are thinking, it shows you how bad this country has become, but it also helps you appreciate why it is that Israel is treated far more harshly in the captivity than Judah is. And you would think, but that's not right, God. But it is because there are no righteous people left. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of Yahweh than all those who were before him. It's the third time we've seen it. So the evil bar goes higher. As if following the sinful footsteps of Jeroboam, son of Bat, were not bad enough, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal, the Sidonians. Now that's important to understand because I love it how the narrator puts it. He says, as if it wasn't bad enough that he was committing the sins of Jeroboam, he also went and married Jezebel. Now that's significant. Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbaal. Ethbaal is the king of Phoenicia. Now, knows his name, Ethbaal. So he has the word Baal in his name. And Phoenicia, right now at this time period, is the heart of Baal worship in the ancient world. 
It has been migrating, shifting slowly over around the world throughout history. But right now, that is the hub, is the heart of it. And Jezebel is his daughter. Now, Jezebel is actually comes from the word Isabel. So it's the Hebrew word Isabel, Isabel, sorry, Isabel. And the idea here is that it says, where is the prince? And that's what's communicating. So she is the, that her name means where is the prince or where is the Lord? Where is the king? And the implication is not like, I don't know where it is, but it's more like it's here. It's Baal. It's a marquee saying that's here. You've arrived. This is the prince of the world. This is the Lord of the world. That's what her name means, Isabel. But the, the author changes her name to Isabel. And Isabel means dung. Basically, it's saying, where is the poop? Because he's basically the Lord of the poop. And we'll come back to that later, but basically it's dung. Basically, the narrator, and this is very important to understand because we're going to track this all throughout the Baal story or the Baal polemic. And there is a prophets who are going to trash talk these Baal worshippers by renaming them no longer. See, Baal... He's going to be called in the Bible later, Baal Zabul. And all throughout the ancient world, he is called Baal Zabul. And that means Lord of the house, Lord of the temple, Lord of creation. But when we get to 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2, the narrator is specifically going to change his name to Baal Zabel. And because the narrator is trash talking him and calling him Lord of the poop, Lord of the outhouse, Lord of the dung. And it's a trash talk that you don't deserve to be called Lord of the temple, Lord of creation, because only Yahweh that is. You're really just Lord of the outhouse. And that's all you can really claim. And so this is a trash talk. So the narrator, if you don't get Hebrew, you, you don't realize, like, all the Jewish people are like, he said poop. Okay, so <laughs> it's just like trash talking on them that is going all throughout this. little side note here. Lord of, the, Lord of the Flies is literally a take from this. Because the whole idea of that story, if you remember Lord of the Flies, is that it's the story of all these properly educated, civilized English boys who've come from the elite families and that kind of stuff, and they crash on this island in the middle of nowhere, and they revert into this evil, sinful, barbarian, everybody out for themselves, and they begin to kill each other, and they begin to, and they actually find this pig's head, and they sit up on a staff or a stake, and they begin to worship it. And the idea is that it doesn't matter how great your education is, no matter how great your breeding stock is, so to speak, when people are left without authority and accountability and judgments and consequences, we all revert to our basic sinful autonomous um, selves. And that's the point that he's really making. That's many other points, but that's a major one. And eventually these flies begin to gather around the pig's head and they're worshiping it as their God. And it's not full-blown worship in a religious sense, but it is a, a devotion, kind of an idea of their paganism and their follow their own heart. And they begin, it's because it's the Lord of the flies. And so oftentimes, Baal was associated with it too because flies gather around dung. And the author is literally taking that from Baal's bell in the Bible. And making that connection that ultimately when we follow our own hearts and we decline into our own moral depravity, we begin to worship Baal. Because that's what Baal basically is. This is a, Baal is the god of following our own natural desires. Sexual immorality, 
um, all and murder, child sacrifice, all that kind of stuff. And so that is like one of the major points that he's making in Lord of the Flies and why he chose Lord of the Flies as the name of his book. So that's the idea here. And that's exactly what Israel is. Think of the kings now and the people of Israel as being those English boys on that island. And that's what they're beginning to do. They're worshiping Baal Zabel. He marries her, and we know that most likely she is the high priestess for Baal worship. Later in the Bible, the Pharisees are going to accuse Jesus of doing miracles in the name of Beelzebel. And they're using that same term. It comes from Baal. And they associate Baal with Satan as the Lord of the air. What's interesting is here is if you take that New Testament reasoning and thinking, if she is the high priestess of Baal, then basically Ahab, the king of the chosen people of God, who's supposed to be the image of God and the garden of Eden of God, has just married the high priestess of Satan and brought her into the kingdom and the garden of Eden of God. What you have is the serpent all over again. The serpent has re-entered the garden. And not only are the people of God rebelling against God, autonomously, but now they're bringing the high priestess of Baal into Israel. And that's why the narrator says if he didn't think that the golden calves were bad enough, he brought Satan's bride into the kingdom. And that's the, now, that's not, now the narrator wouldn't be thinking that, but if we want to translate that into a modern-day church kind of mentality, that would be the way of thinking of it. So this is a huge sin when he brings her in in that kind of a way. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built in Samaria. So then he goes and builds a temple to Baal. And he builds an altar there so people can gather. So now you have two golden calves, temple, and then now you have the temple of Baal, and not including all the high places that have idols on them. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and he did more to anger Yahweh, God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Notice that that's been repeated twice about Ahab. That's been repeated about him twice. During the Ahab's reign, Hilia, Bethelite, rebuilt Jericho. Abram, his firstborn son, died, and when he laid the foundation, Sergob, his youngest son, died, and when he erected the gates, just as Yahweh had warned through Joshua's son, Nun. So this guy, he commissions the rebuilding of Jericho. Now, back in chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, God commanded them to never rebuild Jericho again. And remember, Jericho was the first fruits offering to God. They were allowed to keep every, there was only two cities they weren't allowed to rebuild, Jericho and Hazor, and Ai. But Ai was never originally forbidden. Ai was forbidden to rebuild because of, they didn't do it right with Jericho. He forbids this. And the reason is that this is their first fruits offering to God. So they're taking the first city that they've gained in their conquest and they're offering it to God as an offering to him like you would offer your first fruits of grain or your paycheck. And the reason that God commanded them to never rebuild this city is that would be the equivalent of reaching back in the offering plate and taking your offering back from God. He said, you will lose your son at the cost of the city, and you will lose your other son by the cost of the wall. And by the fact that this is being done, 
The implication that it's directly linked to Ahab means that this isn't some random guy who's decided to rebuild Jericho, because most likely nobody has the money to just build a city. But this is a guy who's been directly commanded and commissioned and financially funded by Ahab to rebuild the city of Jericho. And as a result, the curse of Deuteronomy falls upon, and Joshua chapter 6 falls upon this guy. And he reaps the consequences of this. So what God is basically saying here is, not only has he done more evil than any king before him, not only did he marry the high priestess of Baal and bring her into the kingdom of God, not only has he built temples to Baal, but he took back Israel's corporate first offering to God back out of the offering plate and took it back so he could spend it to rebuild a city to glorify himself. And this is what makes him so evil. 